answer the question over and over, who do you think the baby looks like? That's the question we ask, right? Or the question that we ask, and that's the question that we want to have answered. Who does this baby really look like? Last night, uh, I met Aaron and Danny and their wives, Kara and Annie, at the field station. We chose the field station because there was, there was live music, and we wanted to practice reading lips and inadvertently yelling at each other when songs came to a stop. And we're sitting there at this restaurant, and, and Aaron and Kara, they've got a little girl named Trudy, and she's absolutely adorable. And if anything, so Grace has prepared me to interact with people about their children. So she's got this baby there, and I'm looking at the baby. I'm like, so, so who does the baby look like? That's the question that we ask. We always ask that. We were looking at photos of, of Shep last night because he had spring formal where they also played dodgeball. And I looked at these baby pictures. I was trying to think, who did he really look like? Sometimes he looks like one parent. Sometimes the kid looks like the other. You feel that? Anybody else sense that? When you, I mean, if you get the right angle, that kid looks just like the wife. But from a different angle, that kid is going to look like the dad. That's just how it works. Who does this kid look like? Who does this kid behave like? What are they like? As a follower of Jesus who is still dealing with my sin nature, sometimes my decisions and my behavior look like the God who has rescued me. And sometimes they look like something else altogether. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the life of Moses. He is the central figure of the Old Testament. And sometimes when we look at Moses, we will see that he looks a lot like Jesus. He foreshadows the story of Jesus. He tells us the story of Jesus before we ever get that story. And sometimes we'll look at the life of Moses. And he'll look a lot like us. Sometimes he will behave in a way that seeks to accomplish what God wants. And other times he will attempt to do things that God wants. But he'll attempt to do those things in his very own way. We'll see who Moses looks like, and hopefully as we look at, who, at what Moses looks like, we'll evaluate and examine who each of us look like. We look at the text. If Exodus, we're in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 today. We're covering two chapters of the Bible, and as we look at these two chapters, there's really a framework for which we're going to see it. It's this, God wants God's way. If we learn anything from this text, when we look at who God is and how God seems to function, God doesn't just want us to accomplish something by any means. God wants His way. He wants us to work in His way. Background, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Exodus, uh, Pharaoh also wants his way. Pharaoh would like to have his own way. He actually wants God's way. The problem is that he thinks that he is God and seems to function at times like God. Let me read... Chapter 1 over us. We'll spend some time there and then we'll come back to chapter 2. Here's what it reads. There, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations, they eventually died. But the Israelites 
They were fruitful. They increased rapidly. They multiplied. They became extremely numerous. So that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph. He came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people, they're they're more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when when war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us. They will leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pitom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all the works on them, all the work on them. The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, the first, whose name was Shipra, and the second, whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she can live. The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and has said to them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Pharaoh wants his way. And his way is a way where he gets to function as if he is God and continue to contain a kingdom in and unto himself. Doing things God's way is as important for us as doing what God wants us to do. And here, this Pharaoh is attempting to function in a way where he would be elevated, he would be exalted, he would be seen as the most valuable person in the kingdom, and he wants to eradicate. There's no better word. He wants to eradicate the totality of this nation. You run through these names, and when you really begin in the book of Exodus, it's coming out of something else. So Sometimes we see the Bible as if it is this 66-book collection, which it is, but there is also one whole story that's there. And it's the whole story of Jesus. And as you read in the first few books of the Bible, they're really connected to one another. The book of Genesis tells us the story, as Josh preached a couple of weeks ago, it it concludes with the story of Joseph, and it concludes with God redeeming Jacob and caring for Israel. That's what we see. And here, you're still in Egypt, still dealing with Egypt, And it begins and says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. But it doesn't really say that. It actually has an extra word. The word that we leave out for the sake of clarity is the word and. These and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So this is how the scrolls would read. That's what the scrolls would read for the Jewish people. The name of the book of Exodus, if you're reading from the scrolls, is and this. 
And, and, and this is and it's the very first words of that verse. We, we see that today with Moses. The title of the scroll will be, And These Are the Names Of. I'm really glad they changed that. That's really hard to keep up with. Can you imagine memorizing books of the Bible by the first words? The book of Genesis, in the beginning. The book of Exodus, and these are the names of. When you get to the Gospel of John, in the beginning, two. You, you have this continual thing that's there. There's no way to win an old school sword drill if this is the way the Bible is seeking to function. You have to do something else. You get these names and you'll notice these sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. It gets more difficult there because when you have so many kids naming them, it gets harder and harder. Can I get an amen, people? And you got Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Neptali. These names continuing. This, genu- this Genesis continuation is important, and here's why. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, the people of Israel, when God met with Abraham, he told him to be fruitful and multiply. And as you read through the whole of the book of Genesis, being fruitful and multiplying was exceedingly painful. Every story of birth in the book of Genesis is really, really hard. And you have people who are trying to do what God wanted in being fruitful and multiplying, but they were doing it in their own way. That's why you have stories of men taking concubines and having children, which would be, which would be begrudged. You see that. There are numerous examples in the Old Testament of people trying to do God's will in their own way. But here we've settled into this rhythm, and now we find that this multiplication has moved from painful to exponential. These people are everywhere. They're good for the, the nation of Egypt. But this new king, he doesn't know anything about Joseph. Joseph, the Pharaoh, does not know no stinking Joseph. He has no idea as to who this Joseph is or why this Joseph happens to be there. He has come to power in Egypt and he doesn't know the story of how God had cared for his predecessors through Joseph. And if he did know, he did not care. These Israelites, they're more numerous, they're more powerful than we are. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they're going to multiply further. And when war breaks out, he's expecting war. The nation of Egypt was right on the Nile River. It was fertile. That's why we call it the Fertile Crescent. It's a really popular place. It's a place where you could grow crops. It's a place where animals lived well. It's a fantastic place. And all the while, this king is thinking an outside force, the Hittites more than likely, are going to come in and try and take our land from us. And if there is a nation already living here, they may team up with them and we will be undone. So what we're going to attempt to do in the lives of these Israelite people is we will oppress them. The word is actually afflict, oppress. It's, in the original language, it means these people, we're going to squeeze the life out of them. So I've got a water bottle here. I have one with me every week. I've got a couple of kids at church that do a reasonable facsimiles of what it looks like for me to be on stage and the moms and dads will send me pictures. And I've always got a bottle of water because though I've never been parched up here, I may be. If I were to squeeze this until the top popped off and the water gushed out, that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy would would say it in this way. 
Egypt is compared to an iron furnace baking God's people. It's a great place to live if you're an Egyptian. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. Made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Israel, or rather Egypt, said to the midwives, when you help them give birth, look at the baby. If it's a boy, kill him. His hard work does not keep the people from reproducing. They are still growing as a nation. This is a massively important part of the story. God is at work in these people and it seems to be something that is happening in a supernatural way. So the king still wants his way and because the king believes that he is God, he looks at two women and says, I want you to kill babies. Kill them. These women, they feared God, it says in verse 17. And they didn't do as the king told them. And they let the boys live. So, so the Pharaoh comes to them and says, Hey, why are you not doing what I told you to do? Because I want things to be done in my way. And if you're not going to do things in my way, I'm going to have questions about this. So they tell him, These women have babies so fast. We can't even get there to deliver. They're just babying up. They're not like your Egyptian women, which may have been a stab, I'm not sure. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to these women. I love that we remember these women. On a complete and utter side note, the fact that you have these two women named in this portion of the text is really important because no one else is. The Pharaoh's not named. We don't even have the name of Moses yet. All that we have are these two women who in the face of difficulty sought to stand beside God who they happened to fear. In this, you see the character of God shining out in darkness. In the face of human wickedness. God would eventually bless these women. But here, you already have laid out the very plan of the nation of Egypt to undo, eradicate, remove, completely wipe out Israel. Plan A, engage them in a building project that will exhaust them. Plan B, midwives, you kill the baby boys. And then you get to plan C, where the Pharaoh, the king of the world, says to these mothers, here's what I want you to do. When you have a baby, because the midwives are not fast enough to get to you, you go to the river and just throw the baby in. The sad part is, most of us would look at a text like this and we would begin to evaluate it and begin to ask questions like, well, he gets more and more sinful. He doesn't get more sinful because that's not how sin works. His sin becomes more blatant. Because that's how sin functions in each of us. 
It's there. We are at war with it. And his sin, the sin of this man, is becoming obsessively, increasingly blatant. Work them to death. Kill the little boys. Tell mothers to throw their babies in the river. God's still shining. God's still working. God's still accomplishing things that he wants to see accomplished in the face of adversity because the unique thing about the God of Israel is that he seems to always be working in the face of our adversity. You get to chapter 2 and we see God accomplishing things God's way. And the tension that is at work in the lives of the people of the story. Now a man from the family of, of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. She saw that this baby was beautiful. She hid him for three months. She must have been good at hiding. Because babies are they're pretty loud sometimes. But there's some really helpful words for us in this passage. One is beautiful. Continuing our Genesis narrative, in the book of Genesis, you see that Adam and Eve were very good. This is the same word. When you, God looks at this baby who is born to this woman and this man, this baby is very good. This baby is beautiful. Verse 3, when she could no longer hide the baby, she got a papyrus basket for him. She coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. But what she put him in, the, the word there, the, the little floaty device, is an ark. So now you have Moses, who is not only the new Adam, a retelling of the Adam story, you have Moses, who is the new Noah, in an ark to deliver God's and rescue God's people. Then he sent his, verse 4, then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible, when it says, see what would happen, because we get to see, and what happened was this. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Think Kardashian, there on the shore, seeing said baby. She saw the basket among the reeds. She sent a slave girl took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. Notice what the mother of Moses, spoiler, that's who this is, has done. The king of the world told them to put their baby in the river. And she has put the baby in the river. What he meant for evil, the Lord used for good. The baby's floating, as one does in an ark. Pharaoh's baby, uh, we get to verse 6. She opened it, she saw him, the child, and there he was, a little boy crying. All of Israel is embodied in that word. Crying out. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? This is the sister of Moses who is not named yet. The Pharaoh's daughter, the Kardashian, here's the thing about super rich people, children, but someone else raises them, and that's how this is going to work. 
Go. You go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So she, the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. She's getting paid. So the woman took the boy and she nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, he, she said, I drew him out of the water. This name is pretty interesting. Because the Hebrew term really does mean drew him out of the water. But the Egyptian term Tutmosis, that's also a popular name at that point in history. And it means son. It's also similar to the word for born. All of these things swimming and swirling together. Verse 11, years later after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and he observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew one of his people. He goes, and as he's out there, this is Moses who knows he is Jewish, dressed as an Egyptian. Everyone who looks at him would have to respond to him, and he doesn't seem to belong to either group. And Moses' personality is this. He is impetuous, he is hasty, but he is decisive. He sees that something has taken place. He knows that these are his people who are being mistreated, and he is in this unique position of power to do something about it, and he chooses to do something about it. He chooses to, in some way, begin to reflect the notion of what God has created him to be, a rescuer, but he doesn't do it in God's way. Looking all around and seeing no one, he, he struck the Egyptian dead... And he hid him in the sand. Seems like a terrible place to hide something. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the, in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? And then we have this tense moment where Moses, the, who is not... Jewish enough to be Egyptian, nor is he Egyptian enough to seem Jewish, is right there with these people. And the man said to him, Who made you Lord over us? Are you going to kill me the way that you did the Egyptian? Moses said, What I did is certainly known. Pharaoh heard about this and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. You have Moses in the story who is now attempting to do what God wants in his own way. What if I were to rescue my people by using the small bit of power that I've been given to do something in a way that contradicts what seems to be the heart of Yahweh? He's at the well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, as the priest of Midians do. They came to draw water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered the flock. When they returned to their father Ruel, Jethro, Why have you come back so quickly? 
And they said to him, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Moses, the Jewish man who still seems to be Egyptian, he still has Egyptian all over him. The story of the book of Exodus and the story of the life of uh, the Jewish people, it begins when you see in in Exodus that God is taking them out of Egypt. But as you look at the story over and over, you will begin to notice there is also a tendency for God to take Egypt out of these people. You have God who looks at these people and sees them as some people who need to be delivered. All the while, within them, there is the force of their Egyptian captivity over and over in the story. They'll want to go back to Egypt. They'll want to return to the land of Egypt, to the hope that they mistakenly thought they had in Egypt. And God is going to take that out of them. When she sees Moses here, all that she knows is that he looks like an Egyptian, sounds like an Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian. We know! And the dad says... So you mean to tell me the man that rescued you and after doing the work of rescuing you, he drew water for you, you just left him sitting there? Go get him. So where is he? When did they leave? Why did this man get left behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Verse 21. Moses Moses agreed to stay with the man. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whose name was Gershom. They really need baby name books. (laughs) The name means I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. The word Gershom means stranger or, or alien. And I love that when you get to this point in the story of Moses, that's what he chooses to name his child. Because that's been his story the whole time. He was in Egypt, but he knew that he was a stranger in Egypt. When he went to the Jewish people, he was a stranger to the Jewish people. He was a stranger in Midian, and he will be a stranger in the promised land because he never gets to go. The story of Moses is one that is connected and tied to being the deliverer that God would have him to be, being the agent of God's deliverance of these people. The story of Moses is a story that any of us can come alongside of. Because the people of Yahweh should be strangers in this world. There should be no we for us apart from the kingdom people of Jesus. We should be defined and identified and drastically identified with who Jesus happens to be. And there 
the notion of us following after Jesus in this world means that we align with the things that he seems to align with and want to see his kingdom come in the way that he would have that kingdom come. Not trying to find, as Moses did, doing what God wanted in his own way or what Pharaoh attempted to do in his own way. We should be wanting to see what God wants done in God's way. And the way of God is consistently one of meekness and humility. It's one of compassion and kindness. It's one of loving kindness, steadfast faithfulness. That's the story that God has called each and every one of us to tell. It's the story that Jesus told perfectly and that every one of us have been invited to tell imperfectly. It's the story of a Savior who reaches down sacrificially to rescue people even though he, is, he gathers no benefit from it. That we have been invited in to be the kingdom people of Jesus who belong to Jesus and are identified with Jesus who do not find our we in anything else other than who this Jesus happens to be. 23, after a long time, the king of Egypt, he, he died because that's what happens in these stories. People who think they are gods die. The Israelites groan because of their difficult labor. His work is still there. You have this king who grew excessively and more blatantly wicked, even though that wickedness was always there. And the weight of that is sitting on top of the people of Israel. And then you get these four words that flow from the text. They cried out, and their cry for help because the deliverer of the difficult labor ascended to God. So you see those four words. They cry out, they groan, they lament, and they ask to be delivered. And the response of God is that he hears their cry. He remembers his covenant. Now we have to be careful with the word remember because it's not the way that I remember to stop at Kroger, which I don't. It is that God had made a promise. And he had returned to the promise that he has for his people. He has not abandoned it. He has not forsaken it. But he has turned his full attention to it. This God sees people who are hurting. And this God is going to do something. The people are asking for someone to deliver them. And they get Moses. This man who sometimes reminds us of Jesus and sometimes will remind us of us. And it's fitting that that's where we end today. Seeing God at work in the shadows in a suffering world that wonders where God may be if he's even there. Knowing that God steps out and does something. This is not the first time right now in 2023. This is not the first time in history suffering people have wondered where God is. Would we be people who point toward the true nourishment and rest that can be found in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus? Our true rescuer, our true deliverer, our true hope, our true we. Would we, enact some, do, would we enact doing what God wants in the way that God would have that to be done? 
aligning ourselves with who Jesus is sacrificially, compassionately, mercifully and not being swayed by fear of what may be taking place around us but standing confidently in the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. I you to bow your heads with me this morning. We are going to take communion. We do that each and every Sunday. And as you step up to take communion, before you just jump up and grab the wafer and the cup, could you wrestle with this some? What broken body and shed blood look like and mean for each of us? Would we see that we are more like Jesus today than we were yesterday? That we want to be more like Jesus next week than we are right now? Will we stop trying to shortcut our way toward answers when the only answer that we really have is in Jesus Christ alone, crucified and resurrected as the only model that we have? Jesus, be the things of us. If you're here and you're not a believer, I'm so glad that you're here and I'm thankful that you would choose to be part of worship with us today. If you have not trusted in Christ Jesus, we have sang about Jesus, we have shared about His broken body, His shed blood. Your only hope is that. And if you've not placed your trust in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, I I ask you, I implore you, I beg you not to take a cup and not to eat of the wafer. But if you're a believer in Christ, I invite you to work through it as well before we go through the motions of jumping up and grabbing stuff and sitting back down and waiting to be told what to do. Would we look at our lives and align ourselves with the true rescuer, the foreshadowed deliverer of this passage? Will we remember that Jesus alone is our only hope? If there is someone in the room that you need to forgive or need to interact with in some way, I invite you to do that now. If you need to just do some really reflection on your own life and ask the hard questions, am I doing what God wants in God's way? I want you to do that before you take of the cup. And drink of the, before you take the cup and eat the bread. Father, we thank you for today and your word and the power that we find in it. Would you help us to see you, know you, trust you, and love you? Will we see the things in ourselves that are unlike you? And through the power of your spirit, move more and more to be like you. We ask this in your name, Jesus.